This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Hello, fellow patriots. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My name is Tina McCafferty, and my guest today is Andrew Farleno. And before he gets a word in, I already told him I'm really excited to have him on because for some odd reason, I never get to speak, it seems that way, to anyone that's in my neck of the woods, and he is just down the street from me, more or less. So, Andrew, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, you know, us Utahns, were a little bit strange. Yeah, so we're good to go, though. <laughs> well, I am happy to hear you, and there are so many parts of your story that I'm excited to hear. Let's start at the beginning. Yes, yeah, so, you know, I'm 38 now. My birthday was just a, a few days ago. And born, raised Utah. So born in Salt Lake City, lived there until I was roughly eight years old, you know, just had that like American dream upbringing. At that time, Salt Lake City and where we lived was not rural, but it's not the way it is now. Since I'm from here, I have to ask where that was. Kearns area. Okay. I grew up in Draper. Talk about rural. Okay. Yeah. So. And we were just west of Bangor Highway now. So you could ride your bike east and you're in the city, or you could ride your bike west and you're in the sticks and the mountains. And and that's where it began. Um, lived there until I was roughly eight years old. Uh, but then we moved down to a small little rural farming coal mining community. And that's Carbon County. And within Carbon County, you know, there's five or six different little cities, little towns. And uh, we moved, my dad was born, raised in Carbon County, and he wanted to move us kind of out of the city. It was growing and it was doing those things. And his job just said, go, you know, here's this opportunity. It's in where you grew up. And so he took me and my family down here and it was a blessing in disguise because there was a significant difference between growing up in a city and then growing up in an area where like the truth is there were no rules. It was the mountains and the desert. And as long as you and your friends, your family are safe, you could just go and have fun. We could ride our bikes for miles upon miles and not see a single person. The freedom it allowed growing up was a significant difference uh but that being said though a drastic difference between the person i would have been up there and the person i am now it is a direct reflection of growing up in a small town where you have to do everything you know you have to change your oil you have to change tires you have to do manual labor you have to do these things when you're young because there was no one around and it was awesome it was awesome Where do you fall in line in your family? Uh, So it's my mom and my dad. And then I have two older sisters and, you know, I'm the young, I'm the young one. Okay. You're the baby. I'm the baby. You know, I'm the golden child. (laughs) You're the, (laughs) 
you're the spoiled one. Okay. Because I have three and the youngest, my daughter is the spoiled one. Maybe that's not true in your case, but it definitely (laughs) is true over here. She definitely is the youngest. I was the youngest and I was the only boy. So I was allowed to get away with a lot of stuff. And if I couldn't get away with it, you know, just by default, I blamed it on my sisters and uh, they dealt with it, you know, (laughs) so... (laughs) Did you have a military background in your family whatsoever? How did that come up? Yes. And that's a big influence. That's kind of, that's one of the driving forces that caused me to join the Marines. I grew up in anybody who grew up in the eighties, nineties. I think that was like the heart of that, the action movie industry. You know, it's the Rambos, it's the commando, it's all of these things. And I thought that was awesome. I could just watch those movies all day and I'm like, That's cool. But I was lucky enough to have my grandpa on my dad's side. So my dad's dad, he was in the Army Corps of Engineers and I never met him. I or he died when I was one. Yet everybody in town that knew my last name and knew I was his grandson, they would immediately say, you know, amazing man, one of the best. Right. And growing up, I learned more about his military service and his main duty was Army Corps engineers during before and after the dropping of the atomic bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh, wow. You know, when you experience things on that level and the things that they have to do, especially back then, and then to hear that he came back and lived a fulfilled life as a good man who treated people with respect and maybe he had his own issues and demons from living with watching the dropping of the atomic bombs, but it didn't affect him day to day with his family and his life. So for me, that was huge because I never met the man. I only heard, you know, third person through stories. And then a very influential figure in my life was my uncle, Chris, And he was my mom's brother. My mom had two brothers. He was a Navy guy and he was significantly younger than my mom. So growing up, you know, Uncle Chris was like the cool young uncle. And yet he joins the Navy. And that started the time period of not seeing him for a long time. And then he would come home. And it was that way through our childhood. But when he would come home, he was just this big built strong man who had a different walk to him and larger than posture larger than life right and everybody has that figure in their life and yet he was so large to me in how I thought a man should be that him with my father with a few other figures male figures in my life that was like I need to do that direction I need to go that way He never, and my uncle Chris never persuaded me to join the military, but when I started thinking about, I I need to do something, and this was a young age, I mean, this was 10, 11, I'm like, I want to, I want to join the military, and even him being a Navy guy, especially what he did in the Navy, he always spoke so high in the Marine Corps, and he's like, you know, if you're going to do it, like, try it, you might as well try it. And he never persuaded me, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, but he always spoke of the Marines so high. It was a good persuasion, indirect, I guess, you know. 
How old were you when you joined then? Was it right after high school? Was it before high school ended? It was before. So I actually joined the delayed entry program at 16. 16? So I spent, yeah. And yeah, you know, and the way it works is you could go up to the recruiter's office and you could be like, I want to do this. And they're like, man, you're too young, but this is the program. So my parents actually had to sign off. Andrew, yeah. there, I am just too much of a mom hen, and there is no <laughs> way that I would have agreed to that. Kudos to your parents. You must have been either really mature or like, he's just going to do what he's going to do. And wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, but I mean, so I guess it's scary. a lot of things, you know, and I look back now, 20 years later and I'm like, I'm like, dang, I put my parents through a lot. Yeah. Right? But at that point in time, you know, growing up in such a small town, it was either coal mining or mm. you leave to go do something. Coal mining is and, hard. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard existence. Yeah. And I have coal miners in my family. My brother-in-law is a coal miner and he's one of the best men I know. And, and he loves the industry. He loves being a coal miner. But for me, I just kind of had this thing that I needed to leave. I also thought, dang, small town, I need to get out of here, right? Even though it's an amazingly beautiful place, my family and friends are here. I'm like, I need to do something. So I joined the delayed entry program, which was, it was quite significant, honestly, when I look back at it, because I would go up there two weekends a month for the next two years. And I'd go up to the recruiter station and they would do you know, physical training with us and they would study, they'd give us knowledge. So it actually allowed me to go into boot camp prepared, which is a rarity. Yeah, well, 16 is what year are we talking about then that you actually went to boot camp? This would be 2004. So okay. I graduated in May 23rd and then I left for boot camp on um, June 4th. Okay. I want to back up because most of you will just randomly bring this up and I want to do this with you where were you on September 11th 2001 what do you oh, yeah. remember about that day because that is a pivotal point for so many of you so many veterans that I've yeah. spoken to that was what cemented yes I'm going into the military I'm right. going to defend my family I'm going to defend my country you know, and it's such a significant event. You could ask anybody where they were during like the JFK assassination. It's just one of those events. And I was 11th grade Spanish class. And in fact, where I live now is a half a mile away from the high school. And it was such a pivotal time because it was Mr. Perez's Spanish class. And I, I know this because he was also a mentor of mine. He was like looking at his computer and I could kind of see his face change a little bit. And then he told the class to be quiet. And then he turned the TV on. We just watched, you know, that initial reaction was like, it was just confusion. It was simply just utter confusion. Uh, you know, what's going on, what's happening. And then the second plane hit, you don't have to have a military background to understand like, okay, that's, that's a deliberate action. What's going on. So that's where I was. And uh, September 11th happened that very next week, weekend, I went up to the recruiter station for uh, my twice a month. And that's when they're like, no, it's, it's for real. It, it's going down. How did you feel yeah. about that? Did that cause 
you joining the military to weigh a little bit heavily on your mind? Like, wow, I'm probably going to see some action when you're that young. Does that, does that hit you? Does that impact you? Well, maybe I could back up a little bit and I'll, I'll kind of tell you the reason why I actually joined the Marine Corps okay. was I've always been educated as far as an intellectual I've taken education and intelligence, you know, at the forefront of, you know, personal wealth. I had the testing scores to go do, you know, the nuclear sub program or to do the fighter pilot. And, but for me, I'm like, heck no, like, I'm serious. Like I want to do Rambo. That's what I thought, right. Growing up, I want to be a, I want to like shoot guns and fight. And I don't know what it was in, in me. Right. But that's just what I wanted to do. So I went to every recruiting office and I went to the Air Force and they, they're like, you could be, you know, a pararescueman. And but I was like, I don't like to swim that much. And they like to jump in the <laughs> ocean a lot, right? <laughs> so, then I go to the Navy and the Navy guaranteed me if I could graduate boot camp, then they could get me a slot to try out for BUDS. Well, yeah, I was, I was about Navy ready to ask program. you, did that yeah. interest you at all? Because that it is did. like physical and mental. That is like mm -hmm. the top mental. I think that's more mental than it is physical, right? Because you can't get through the yeah. physical unless you are in top mental condition for that. Absolutely. 100% spot on. And, you know, so they said you could graduate boot camp and we could guarantee you a spot in order to try out. I was like, okay. So then I thought about that. And then I went to the army and they're same thing. They're like, if you could graduate boot camp, we could guarantee you a slot in ranger school. And after ranger school, we could guarantee you a slot in their special forces program in order to try out, right? They're not guarantee the spot. Right. They're just guaranteeing the opportunity. And I thought all that was cool. And then I went into the Marine Corps office, <laughs> the recruiting office. I'm talking with the recruiter. And my posture was kind of slumped a little bit. You know, I was a teenager. Yeah. And I was using teen like lingo and speaking to him like he's my friend. You know, I'll excuse my language because I'm on a podcast, but he essentially told me and my dad was there. I can't like guarantee you anything. This is the Marine Corps. Like what in the are you expecting? But what I can guarantee you is discipline. So maybe the next time you come in this office, you could speak to me like a man and then we could talk. And I kind of like was like, oh, that's the first time a, another individual other than my father has spoke to me that way. It hurt my heart. <laughs> right. Like I'm like, wow. So I left and I thought and I thought and I was I go to bed and I was like, the only person that's not guaranteeing me anything is the Marine Corps. That's the only branch they're not guaranteeing me nothing i was like yeah those are the guys through the whole delayed entry program it's everything's earned they tell you everything's earned you have to earn everything discipline respect for me i was already motivated that motivation factor of you have to earn everything was so profound and strong that i knew that's the group of people i wanted to be with so then when 9 11 happened it really didn't weigh on me heavy because that's what I wanted to do. I'm like, I, I need to go. I need to go from what I've experienced, not even being a Marine, from what I've experienced from the Marines that I encountered, I knew I'd be okay. That's who I needed to be with.
So 9-11 was like, it's like the Super Bowl. The Marines are going. I want to be that, right? My parents now, different story. Son enlists in the Marine Corps prior to a war, but now a war is happening. That's for a parent. I mean, the mood in the house changed. It got real. So it was, oh yeah, yeah, very real. You go to boot camp, and how soon after then are you deployed? So go to boot camp, and then we had one six-month workup, which is like a training exercise. And we knew we were going to Afghanistan. But the thing about it is we were going into a portion of Afghanistan, the Hindu Kush mountain range, the Korangal Valley. Afghanistan, like demographic and the way it's located, and you know, it's Pakistan, is the main country at borders, but people don't realize if you like look at the very northeastern portion of Afghanistan, it's a little sliver where it borders with Pakistan and China. Well, where the Korangal Valley and Kunar provinces were right on the border of northeastern Pakistan. We knew we were going in the mountains, but we also knew we were going to an area that was completely isolated. There's the friendly forces, the nearest friendly forces is hundreds of miles away. And it's in the mountains. And it's in an area where the Mujahideen have strongholds, which is now the Taliban slash Al-Qaeda forces. So our workup was predominantly like mountain fighting and like getting ready to have the terrain break us because that was the determining factor was the terrain. It was just mountains. So. I have a lot of questions for you and I'm going to just ask them all because I don't know how the timeline works. And then if you can just kind of fit Mm -hmm. in the timeline. Number one, I'm wondering what a kid from Carbon County, Utah thinks when you land in Afghanistan, which is Mm -hmm. when you talk about foreign, that is foreign. Mm -hmm. So there's that. How many deployments did you have? Where were they too? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to shoot them all at you here. I hope that's okay, yeah. Andrew. And then you can fill no, it. that's fine. So how many deployments did you have? Where were they? Um, when does Matt Bradford come into the picture? We'll talk a little bit about him. And yeah, let's just go from there. And what were your responsibilities there? Absolutely. Yeah. So, oh, Afghanistan. I mean, you read the books and, and that's also a thing I did prior to going to Afghanistan as I, I read history books on it. And, you know, it's an eye-opening experience when you land because we land in a air base called Bagram Air Base, a huge former Soviet air base. It's flat. And then you see off in the distance, the mountains, and it looked like home. It looked like Utah, but the smell was different. The atmosphere was just you could tell it was dangerous. And we spent like a week in Bagram Air Base. They were getting our supplies ready and doing those things. And I remember they say, you're going to the Korangal Valley. And we didn't know what that was. They say, you're going to the Hindu Kush Mountains, Kunar province. We don't know what that is. But when you talk with the special forces soldiers on Bagram Air Base that we would routinely run into and ask them questions, they're like, good luck. Oh, great. And I remember one guy, he was a, he was an older gentleman, probably late forties. He was an SF guy. And he tells me, you'll be lucky if the helicopters can make it there. And 
I'm just thinking, whoa, right? We're getting ready. We're going into battle. That's what we think, right? And yet the most dangerous aspect is just getting there for now. Such an eye-opening experience. We fly into a base called Asadabad. And I remember being in the Chinooks and you're flying so low because they're using terrain mapping, which means the helicopter follows the terrain. And that's a safety thing. And we're just looking out the back of the helicopter and I just see women in their black turbans walking through the mountains on trails. I see tiny little, you know, mud huts with smoke coming out of like the little chimneys. And I see this beautiful, magnificent terrain. And yet seeing the women in all black turbans and clothes walking through these goat trails through the mountains was eerily spooky to me. It was something I did not expect to see. Yet that was the first real like, okay, I'm here. Uh, I'm in Afghanistan, completely different. So we land and we get there and Asadabad was a little bit bigger of a base for that area. It had us, it had members of the 75th Ranger Regiment. It had special forces and Navy SEALs and Delta Force guys. The way it was situated, the Pesh River is flows north through south through Afghanistan. And it's this magnificent river, but that's kind of what separates a lot of the areas of fighting. And the Pesh River is this blue aqua turquoise river, extremely gorgeous. And yet you could see fighting on the mountainside across the river and you could see it and hear it. And yet there's no way to get to it. And that's kind of how Afghanistan was completely isolated at all times. The fighters we encountered were extremely, extremely good. Do you remember Uh, your first firefight? What do you remember about it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So first firefight. And that's another story. You know, you hear of these things of, you know, guys, World War II, Vietnam, you know, the first time they get shot at, they don't fire back because it's kind of it's this lapse in training, but value of life. Real quick, Andrew, doesn't that first firefight change you? I mean, my son is 18 and he wanted mm-hmm. me to watch the Pacific with him. Have you ever heard of that? I had no idea that oh, yeah. it existed. Like, I guess it's kind of like the companion mm-hmm. to Band of Brothers, which I absolutely love. And I think every American needs to see that series. So we started watching the Pacific and it's really interesting. And they're Marines. And here they are. Yeah. I'm sure this wasn't you at all. <laughs> you know, you go in all cocky, like, here we come. We're the Marines. You know, we're going to come in and right. we're going to end this. <laughs> And then after that first firefight, wow, just the expression changes, everything a lot more somber. You grow up a lot. I would say conservatively after an individual's first firefight, they age probably 10 years. Mentally, emotionally, it's like an instant life altering course of action. So my first firefight, we're patrolling through the mountains and, you know, my unit that we were with, which was 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines, we were all light infantry and I was a machine gunner at the time. So that was my role. I was a team leader in a machine gun team. So you have your machine gunner who carries the big M24 and then you have your assistant gunner who carries tripod and optics and ammo. And then you have your team leader and you control that team. 
So we're patrolling and it's about a day and a half into the patrol and we actually stop for a security halt. And at that time we were taking cat naps during security, you know, half the squad would post up security. The other half would take a nap, essentially five minutes, right? Just to kind of get some rest. And it was my turn as the team leader, because I allowed and let my Marines sleep first. It my turn now. So all I do is I lay down, I take my boonie cover and I put it over my head. And I remember the funny things you remember is I remember how good it smelled. It smelled just like the mountains back home, pine trees, because that's what it was, pine and cedar. And it smelled so good and it was so beautiful. And then my eyes closed, the explosion. So right above us was a patrol of, I call them Mujahideen because at the time they didn't, they weren't Taliban. They shot a rocket propelled grenade at our security halt and small arms fire. And I remember getting up and I was confused. My guys were returning fire. And yet I was confused because I I'm, you know, awake by explosion. But then after that, I never saw the enemy during that firefight. It was a little skirmish, a few hundred rounds fired through the machine gun. Contact was over. But I remember patrolling the very next day and I'm wondering to, to myself like why are these guys shooting at us I'm like why are they shooting why do they want to kill us because I'm there and I know that's my this quote unquote that's my duty is protection eliminate the enemy but at the same time me and my marines if we encounter people we're there to help and I'm thinking to myself wow like these guys, they want to kill us for simply patrolling through their, their mountains, right? But then you get a little bit more mature, I guess, in combat and in war, and you understand it's an ideal. I was confused, though. My first firefight, completely confused, completely in shock of people actually want to kill me. But... This is where I say people like age 10 years. I felt right after that firefight, I aged instantly 10 years in my Marine Corps career. And it was kind of like, after that, it was like, it's go time all the time. Like no questions asked. Afghanistan was brutal though. Uh, the most beautiful place I have ever seen, Northeastern Afghanistan. Really? Most beautiful by far. Extremely gorgeous the beautiful mountain peaks and pine trees and cedars and wildlife and rivers, yet the most dangerous, I would say easily the most dangerous place I could imagine. The fighters there were extremely hard individuals, mentally and physically. And I kind of relate it like this. You know, the Afghanistan, they've been occupied for centuries and haven't been defeated. But as of recently, the Soviets and their war in the 80s was called the Soviet Vietnam. The Soviets occupied Afghanistan and they lost. But you had this group of people, my dad's age, you know, 60s and 50s, who fought against the Soviets. And then they have kids. And they teach their kids not baseball and football. They teach them survival. They teach them how to properly clean and shoot their AK-47. They teach them field craft and they teach them 
and we found, find out they teach them improvised explosives and they teach them how to purify water so they could patrol longer. They teach them all these things. So you're fighting against individuals that are not only mentally and physically hard because of the situation they're in, their tactics are perfect guerrilla tactics because they've been doing it since childhood. So that was another eye-opening experience. I'm thinking that like, yeah, big badass Marine, me and my unit were amazingly trained. And then you get there and you come to find out like a 15 year old Afghan kid could carry more ammo than you for longer. Just the significance and culture is profound, beautiful, but profound. But the significance in your capabilities compared to what people think are ragtag militia slash guerrilla forces is also pretty profound. I mean, I would say on par with us. Wow. And it's their home turf. Yeah. But there's one significant factor and it's the value of life. That's the significant factor. I could talk hours upon the value of life, but being a Marine and a U.S. service member, you love your Marines. You love the United States. You love your family. And you'll do anything to preserve that life and get back. Anything. Over there, a lot of the times those fighters, they the value of life isn't there. Mm-hmm. They're there to complete jihad. And for them dying for their cause is the best thing they could do. And for us living for our cause and making sure our individual Marines and and soldiers live, that's what we want. So the commitment to fighting hard on our side, no question, we fight so much harder. And that's the distinguishing factor is we, we want to get back. We have a life to live. We don't want, that's another thing is, it's kind of a Hollywood taboo thing when a guy goes to war, you know, I'll die for my country yet being in the Marines for over a decade, I asked any of my Marines, like, would you die for the country? And the vast majority say, heck no, I want to live. Like I want to live for the country. I want to live so I could experience it. And that is a motivating factor to train and fight tooth and nail as hard as you can. So it's a significant difference. Tactics are pretty on par, but the motivation and the value for life is completely different. All right. How many deployments do you have? And when do you meet Mr. Bradford? So I go to Afghanistan, the deployment we talk about, get back to Hawaii. That's where we were stationed. Uh, We're there for a few months. We're training. And then we get a new Marine, what we call a boot drop. Boots are new Marines. And Bradford was a new Marine. See, now I was a machine gunner, though, and he was a rifleman. So we were completely separated. And machine gunners have kind of like this folklore in the Marine Corps because we're typically bigger and stronger. We carry the firepower and and we're kind of a cult within a cult. Right. (laughs) And he's a rifleman. He's one of those little guys, you know, I mean, it's this constant competition. Yet. We love them. It's a constant competition. So I never experienced Bradford through training um, and through like even 
day-to-day stuff like going on Libo. He was a junior Marine and he was a rifleman. But then we go to Iraq in a place called Haditha, Iraq. And what happened to our company is they took the weapons Marines, which is like your machine gunners and your assault men and mortar men, and they dissolved those Marines into the rifle platoons. Just because there was really no need for like machine gunner specifics, mm-hmm. right? It was house to house fighting. It was urban, yeah. short engagements. So I go to the platoon and the squad that Bradford's in. That's when I start to experience Bradford. And, you know, luckily for us, all of our new Marines were, were respectful and disciplined and there was very little conflict uh, of, you know, hierarchy of your rank and of uh, fraternization and things like that. It never existed. And Bradford was always, I knew he was like a Southern kid. I love his drawl. It's very sly. Yeah. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and that's another thing I'm Utah. Like I'm as Utah as they get. And people think uh, we have accents. What's up with that, Andrew? Yeah, I know. People can't figure it out. I've had a few people ask me if I'm from Texas. Oh yeah. (laughs) You know, most people, they, they think I'm like a Cali kid because I'm like laid back and stuff. And the way I talk, I'm like, no, I'm Utah. You know? It must be so, because we say things like mountains. Yeah. <laughs> that T just doesn't yeah, exist. Our pronunciation on yeah. something is <laughs> yeah. silly. Anywho, okay, back but, on. Yeah, and I start to experience Bradford and, and his senior Marines never had any issues with him. Discipline issues, none of that. He was just a good-to-go guy, hard training. Haditha, Iraq, I mean, to put it in perspective we experienced a hundred plus casualties within two months. Oh, wow. You know, guys routinely losing limbs from IEDs to we had real bad casualties from sniper fire and mortars and, and things like that. I mean, it was just brutal. Uh, Afghanistan could break you terrain wise and Iraq could easily break you because of the violence. It's super up close. You know, like a lot of Vietnam guys I would talk to, they'd speak of the jungle and mm-hmm. how close it is, and how scary it is. The guys who would like fight in the cities in Vietnam, Saigon and, and Way City, they'd be like, you know, it's no different than the jungle. It's close. It's violent. So we were losing guys, significant injuries. And, and that's also the other thing, though, is urban terrain. There's training. The Afghan fighters were trained and capable. The fighters in Iraq, you do not have to be that trained to be very effective in urban. Um, So many places to hide. The distances are so close. I had like a significant event happen in Iraq. I was a team leader and we're patrolling down a road and I split my team up into two teams. So one team could be on one side of the road and the other team could be on the other side. And there was a tactic called bounding. A team moves up, covers you, you move. It's just leapfrog. And a very known bad intersection was called Market Street Intersection. And it was an intersection of a main road to where this street with a market is, you know, open air food and fruits and vegetables market. And I was new to the area, so I, I didn't know how to read the people or the atmosphere. You know, on a typical day, that market would be full of thousands of people doing their daily shopping. But that day, there was no one there. But I, I was new 
I, I didn't know that the area in the atmosphere. So not thinking anything of it. I'm leading my team down one side of the street. I have the radio on my back and I took a knee to kind of reach over and adjust the radio to look at my frequencies. And I, I wake up. Well, what happened is a 13 year old kid who was probably paid by Al Qaeda to take a machine gun. He took a PKM machine gun and a hundred round belt. And all he did is he stuck it around the corner and he lit a hundred rounds of 30 caliber machine gun. And one of them hit me on the top of the helmet oh my and knocked gosh. me out. Yeah. So, you know, luckily the Kevlar helmet saved me and saved my life, but I wake up, my Marines pulled me into a shop and I was knocked out. Marines being Marines, they're laughing and they're, they're swearing at me and they're saying, you know, you almost died, but in the language, get up, you know, let's do this. And I'm confused and I get up and we continue the mission. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but wow, that's the brutality day. of it because a young kid who my squad ended up killing him, taking a child's life. Right. When that happened, they had no choice. Yes. To, oh my. They have no choice. Right. So when we find this kid on the street, his body is, it's not looking good. It's, it's torn up and we take all the intelligence and whatever he has off of his body. And we take out his passport and he's from Chechnya. And he's a young kid. So let's stop there for a second, Andrew. Mm -hmm. What does that do to you and the other Marines that you're with that you have, they have had to kill a child Mm -hmm. and they've had, some of them had to have siblings that age, you know, or Mm -hmm. thinking of kids at home in the U S that are that age. And not only that, now you see the condition that this kid's body is in and how he was raised. What does that do to your psyche? Well, you know, it's a, there's no denying it being an infantry Marine, you know, the heart of the culture in the infantry Marine Corps is violence and aggression, but it's all, it's all tamed with discipline and, and, and thought process. Right. And I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Taking a person's life in war, when you're trained to do that, there's no other high, adrenaline high like that. It affects you in ways that are so significant, yet you can't comprehend it on the fly. So, you know, not to paint a bad picture for my Marines, but honestly, they're, you know, using the language Marines use. Hey, we got them. Cool. Well, well, the thing is, too, I've talked to enough of you that we know, like you're talking about, it's muscle memory. And that's what you're trained to do. But the military isn't great. Or maybe, you know, you don't have the time right then to deal with it mentally. And so when you get home, that's Mm -hmm. when it all just kind of explodes. Yeah. And it can. It absolutely can. So during that situation, it's like, heck yeah, you know, Corporal Farlano, he's alive. Good to go. Let's, let's go. Wow. Bad dude's dead. He's a child. Right. But then it's different though, when you get back to base and, and I'll tell you why is 
when you start to get that somewhat safety and comfort of like taking your gear off, maybe taking a shower and getting some warm food, that's when you could start to process things. We'll kind of save that because it's a little bit more profound after you get out. Yeah. So sad. You know, so things like that happen, right? The, the Haditha deployment was extremely violent, a lot of casualties. And one of Bradford's, this is kind of how I became real good friends with Bradford. Matt Bradford is one of his really good friends that was his same essentially peer group was killed in Haditha. The whole platoon shared like this. Our base was an old school. And yet our platoon was outside of the school. We were about a hundred yards away in this isolated building. That was kind of our hooch area. That's where we'd sleep. And I remember seeing him sitting on his cot gear off and he's just looking into nothing. And you know, it's not typical. And I, I will also say I was not the typical Marine. I never yelled. I never screamed. I never raised my voice. It, there was no need for it. But it's also not typical for a senior Marine to go and like comfort an individual. But I, I see him and I could tell he's like devastated. But I also know like he's still here. He still has to be present. So all I do is I go over and put my arm around him and I tell him a few things, you know, like, Uh, that's the name of the game but this is what it means and this is how you could go forward I'm trying to get him centered again and and I know that was pretty profound for him because I think he felt alone so that was our first real big interaction of not only am I your senior and you could look up to me but like like you're my brother we're we're here together that was my first interaction, big interaction with Bradford was giving him some comfort in a time of need. Fast forward a few months and his squad's out on a mission. And what happens is the IED goes off. All details aside, an IED goes off. And we hear over the radio, my squad is back. We just get off mission. We're at the base. We're cleaning weapons and eating food. We hear this squad's hit, two casualties over the radio. It's Matt Bradford and Ryan Irving, and we're thinking they're dead. But then it comes back, you know, severe wounds, loss of limb, eyesight, things like that. But it's one thing seeing the enemy dead, and this is where the disassociation of you, you have to be able to separate yourself Seeing the enemy dead is one thing. You could be like, yeah, that is somebody's father or son or brother. But in war, it's that's me or them. That's life or death. That's the enemy. That's a target. But when you see your brothers who you eat, sleep, and drink with, who you know their families, you love them. When you see their bodies in that condition, like it's... It's disgusting. So did you see him sad. after, right after it happened? Yeah. So what went on is another squad responded that was out on patrol and performed medical aid and evacuation. But they had to bring Ryan and Matt back to our little base because the LZ for the helicopters was just right around the corner. 
there was too many, too many Marines taking care of both those individuals at the time. So you don't want to get involved. Right. But I saw him and what I remember though, is his legs were still there. They were just, they were just shredded. But what I remember is his safety glasses, his eye protection was still on, but there were holes in his eye protection from shrapnel. And I thought that was so strange that it's so powerful that it could go through his ballistic eyewear, but his glasses are still on. And then I saw next to him, I saw Ryan Irving and his leg was completely like, like burnt. Right. And in that moment, I knew they were being taken care of because they had the corpsmen and they had the medical staff there. But I also knew the LZ needed to be secured. And when stuff comes like that, it's like whoever's available just goes. So I can remember I never ran as hard in my life as I did then. I didn't have any of my equipment on. I just grabbed my rifle and me and four other Marines, we ran off the base onto the LZ another squad arrived, we secured the LZ and then he was gone. And, you know, when you, when you see an individual leave in that situation, you have to be honest with yourself and you have to say, nope, he he's gone. He's not coming back. Like there's no way. I mean, the human body is so amazing yeah. to be able to from things like that, because when you're missing your legs, you're missing an arm vision's gone your eardrums are blown out internal bleeding and yet you could still live we thought both of them were gone and you know it's sad it's sombering it's like you you lose a part of you and everybody else is just gone but there's it's no joke you have to continue the mission so it's like you have to focus on who's present in the mission and That's why when you get back, it hits people so hard is because the mission is priority. If I remember correctly, Matt hadn't been out that long, right? This was his first deployment. He only been out for a few Mm -hmm. months. Isn't that correct? Yeah, this was his first deployment just a few months into it. Yeah. Yeah, Just Um, a few months into it. And for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, I'll attach it into the show notes. But Matthew Bradford, uh, his model is no, no legs, no vision, no problem. He was one of my earlier guests, and I'll put that uh, in the show notes so you can um, go and listen to his episode. But because of this explosion, Matt lost both of his legs and his vision. And what I remember, a big part of his story, Andrew, that is just so terrifying, is he mentioned to me about waking up and not being able to see. And Mm -hmm. he said that he thought that he had been blindfolded. And that he was with the enemy. The enemy had captured him. Imagine yeah. that confusion, that terrifying confusion. Yeah, when the injury like that happens to you, I mean, the, the darkness just takes over. Um, your emotions and mental capacity for understanding is just, it's scrambled. Yeah. And, and to be terrified like that, to comprehend your injuries, but you could only film, you can't see them. I mean, for him to be as optimistic as he is now, if you don't believe in like God, I mean, for him, that's proof for me. 
that is proof of like, there's something bigger than us because when you look at the way life is, if he would have passed away, he would have just been another casualty. And he was so destroyed physically. There's really no use for that. But then you realize what he's done to other people's lives and the motivation and the love and compassion and understanding and the, the help he's giving individuals. He has made more of an impact since his injuries than even he admits his entire previous life. He started it over. And I believe he is in South Africa this week, isn't he? Something you know, like he's that. a traveler. He's he with, spoiled now. I know he's with Marcus Wilson. Do you know who Marcus Wilson is? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had Marcus on my podcast. What a, yeah, he's such a sweet man, such a soft-spoken man. Maybe he wasn't with he his is. Marine brothers, but he was with me. But I know no, he's, and he, he was a gunnery sergeant everyone looked up to. Oh, yes. Yeah, such a good yes. man. But Matt yeah, is very well known in the military community because, like you said, he does so much for so mm-hmm. many people. What was it like to see him the first time? I don't know how much longer that was down the road, how much further it was down the road that you saw him. And mm. you're looking into these eyes that once could see you and now they yeah. can't. What's the difference? What was that like? Ooh. Well, you know, it was kind of scary. I'll say that. Like, I was nervous. And it was almost a decade and a half later. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yes. So it was a significant amount of time. So after deployment, we get back and I became an instructor. So I was done deploying. Uh, I became an instructor for a school called Advanced Infantry Squad Leaders Course. And I'll tell people this all the time. If I could have done one job for the rest of my life, it would have been that one. It was just an amazing opportunity in the Marine Corps. But I was done deploying. And, you know, the way the Marine Corps works, every four years, you have to go somewhere else. So everybody's going other places. And, you know, you stay in touch. And I'll say this, that's what Marines do really well is stay in touch. At least my group of Marines, uh, we message and we talk and we see how each other are doing. You know, we're brothers, right? But Bradford dealing with his injuries, by the time we got back, he was gone and he was getting, you know, help, medical help. And he was kind of off the radar. But then that's also the sad thing, though, is other individuals' lives, they continue. Right. So my life continued. It was about six years ago, Bradford started reaching out again to me. So the first time I received a text message, I was like, wow, this is awesome. Right. Because we just lost communication just through life. And but then he tells me I'm doing this rucksack march in Gunnison, Utah. And I was like, oh, okay." You know, I've seen some of his social media posts of, you know, he does marathons and he swims and he does these extreme events and you know it's just amazing but he calls me and he's like the gunnison gut check rucksack march in utah you want to do it heck yeah let's do it so my wife and i we plan on meeting him down there and doing it with him and so we get there a day early and he's out with this uh 
it's called Operation um, Enduring Warrior. Yes, sir. Yeah, and it's just this group of awesome individuals from all branches of service, and they help, you know, veterans out. And they're kind of being his, like, his guide, mm-hmm. and they're sponsoring him on this event. And so I say, we get there, and I'm like, where are you at? And he's like, we're at this, you know, drive-in, and we're having ice cream. Come and see me. And I know he can't physically see me, and but I'm, like, hesitant. And it's, you know, my wife is next to me, and I'm walking up to this this man that the last time I saw him, he was... He had two legs. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, he had two legs and he had everything. But the truth is, the last time I saw him, he was, his eyes were gone and his legs were destroyed and his arm was destroyed. So I was, I was kind of scared. I was nervous. And, uh, you know, and I just walk up to him and I put my hand on his back so he knows somebody's there. And I say, you know, it's Andy. And it was like, we never even skipped it a beat it's not i never see him as a man with his injuries uh, it's just i i know him as matt right i know him as a man who fought hard and stroke of luck on the enemy's you know perspective and they got him but they didn't get him they in fact they made him stronger that's the crazy thing is i i know multiple marine brothers of me who lost limbs and had severe injuries and they're stronger they're mentally focused. Their purpose is profound. So it was like we didn't even skip a beat. And then the very next day, he would walk with his prosthetic legs through the desert, through the mountains. And he'd put his arm on my shoulder. He'd put his arm, other arm on my wife's shoulder. We walked and completed this event together. And, it, you know, it's bonding like that. That is, it's it's needed in a warrior society and culture is too many times a lot of times people who gave it they're all they're lost when they come back home and for him his purpose makes all of us stronger so for me that actually kind of rekindled a lot of my heart as well and it was just a nice honestly it was a nice afternoon together and it's what brothers need and it'd be no different than going fishing with your dad and talking life. It's needed. It was a long time and I was scared to meet him again. And yet I met him and it's like we didn't even skip a day. You had your Pretty two nice. deployments then. You're an instructor. How much longer mm-hmm. is your military career before you exit? So after Haditha, I spent another three years in the, in the Marine Corps and it was all at instructor status. It was an amazing school. We would take small unit leaders from all around the Marine Corps and we would train them on the most up-to-date tactics to go to either Afghanistan or Iraq. And it was professionally for me, it was the best thing I could have ever received and done because I was a sergeant at the time. And sometimes I'd be getting students that were staff sergeants or gunnery sergeants a few ranks ahead of me. Yeah. I would have to portray that I knew this knowledge and I'd have to lead by example to Marines that would get back to their units and would be leading 30 to 40 Marines. It was a gentleman's course. It was completely professional. And for me, what it did for me was the confidence that I gained from that being an instructor and passing knowledge to people and having them retain that was 
so significant to me that still to this day, I think about that course daily and what it did for my maturity and also how I perceive myself. Uh, now, after that, I know people will come to me like I'm that person people could come to for help and for guidance. And prior to that, I just thought, oh, people will come to me because I'm big and strong and I'm, I'm smart and I could protect them. But now I know people will come to me because they need guidance. And for me, oh, that is so rewarding. So I completed that course and then I transferred over to Camp Helen for another year and finished out just in uh, another infantry unit. The writing on the wall for the Marine Corps, it was there for me. Uh, the one thing I wanted to be more, more than a Marine is I always wanted to be a dad, a father. Even from, even when I was a kid, I always thought, how would I be as a dad? Like, I want, I want children. And I was injured. I was constantly injured on deployments and in training. And, and that lifestyle, I knew, I knew the writing was on the wall. I could have stayed in the Marine Corps and I, I could have had a family, but I didn't want to put any future children I had in that situation. So luckily though, I did, I didn't get out with a plan. I was actually recruited by a firm called Gavin De Becker and Associates. And what they are is executive protection, they're bodyguards. Oh, wow. And okay. I was, I was recruited by them and, you know, they gave me the spill and I was like, okay. And it was actually a very hard process to get in. It, it, it took the better part of a year and a half. But I made it through the process, and then immediately after the Marine Corps, I started protecting the two wealthiest American families. And Who is I that? was on a team. Of, I can't say. Oh, that. you can't! Dang it! I, <laughs> I had a you know, you're going to say that. I'm like the two wealthiest families. That could be. Hmm. Okay. Some families out there are like the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, yeah. the Hearsts, you know, the Diamantes, and all that, right? I bet you have some stories to tell if you could share them. You probably had to sign like a non-disclosure, didn't you? Yeah, I'm still under that age. Oh, man, you probably have some good stories, don't you? (laughs) Anyway, don't worry. I won't get you in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, so I I do that. And that's that's the lifestyle I lived after the Marine Corps. It was um, to make a really, really long story short, that career, I learned a lot. But it was a lifestyle that was not conducive to a happy, healthy lifestyle for me. I can see that. And the reason why is, you know, you're protecting people who necessarily don't need protection. They just have an extreme amount of wealth. Mm -hmm. And that wealth is a determining factor on how their lives are conducted and for me, I saw what extreme wealth does to people. And I had to protect people that had very little values and morals and did not know how to conduct themselves appropriately. And so unofficially, we just called it billionaire babysitting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you go out and some of these People that you have to protect when they're spending five, six hundred thousand dollars on a dinner, one dinner. How do you even do that? Holy cow. Yeah. And and the things I experienced while in that lifestyle, the the two main factors is like the Marine Corps made me extremely 
grateful for being born in a free country, a Western country, a mm-hmm. society of compassion and love and value of life and being an executive bodyguard for these wealthy individuals. They made me extremely grateful for being middle-class. I'm sure they are so I mean, out of touch, wrapped up in their own little bubbles. They have no ooh. idea what average Americans yeah. go through. Yes. The, I will say being a middle-class individual is it's where it's at. Really? <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that money's awesome. It would be nice it, in cool. some regards. I'll have to say yeah. Andrew, <laughs> but now not all of them are bad. I met and protected a few individuals that they grew their wealth from the ground up from being. Yes. I can see it's probably the ones who've inherited the money who have no idea what it's like. Yeah. The individuals I protected that they grew their business from the ground up. Stellar people. Yeah. Families were amazing. Perfect. But that's not the majority of that industry. Yeah. And I was also doing like a hundred to 110 hour weeks. I was, oh, I was sleeping say, in the closet. Out I'm sure they expect you to be at their beck and call. I would routinely, you know, pull like 28 hours straight and then sleep oh for gosh. three hours. So you're not like, married at this just, time. I was. Oh my word. Yeah, wow. I was married at the time, but then my ex-wife is pregnant and I'm like, like, I can't be doing this lifestyle either with the child. I've never seen my child. So I'm like, what do I do? Like, I'm, man, I'm a planner. I'm, it, it has to be in order. I did a detail that made me quit. And it's the only time I've ever quit in my life, a significant thing like this. And I won't name any names or do any of that, but I'm in Oslo. <laughs> Just so, everybody just, can, just so everybody knows, I have my ear up to the computer, but he's not letting anything out. <laughs> I'll, I'll text you. Okay. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm doing a detail in Oslo, Norway, and my client goes to the restroom and certain protocols, the client's not coming out of the restroom. So we go in the restroom and the client is laying face down and there's also a female in the restroom face down and they're both naked and they both OD'd on drugs. And this is an individual I'm supposed to protect. After that incident, I'm like, I, I'm done with this lifestyle. I quit. I turn in my credentials. I turn in my firearm, all my gear. And I say, I'm done with this. And my detail leader was an amazing guy. I'm still awesome friends with him. He said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, my wife's pregnant. I want to raise my child around family. So I'm going to move back to Utah and become a coal miner. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> oh, wow. You know? <laughs> That's what people do when they live in Carbon County. And you know, the, the wages you make, it's an awesome life. If you could endure the hardships of being a coal miner, you make a lot of money. Benefits are great. That's what I'm doing. Screw all of this. I'm done with this lifestyle. Coal mining, right? That's me with no plan. About a month later, I'm in a U-Haul with my cat and my dogs and <laughs> I'm going to Utah. I relocate to Utah and immediately I just had this sense of like relief. It's just like, okay, I'm back home. These are the familiar places, the sights and the sounds and the people, the smell, right? I'm like, oh, I'm relieved. (laughs) But then the coal mines went on a strike, all of them. All right, well, coal mining's not working out for me. So I took a temporary job as like a 
apprenticed at electrical company. Once again, though, they're getting all the contracts in Colorado and Wyoming. So now I'm traveling and I'm gone for the whole week. Yeah, I'm like, I can't escape being gone. I'm never home. Luckily, though, my father's neighbor tells my dad, I have this job and it's local. Come and have your son. Give it a go. And that's what I've been doing since. And it's for a company. We do crazy things, but we do development and research and design. And we make amazing products for the defense industry. And it's local. That's what I've been doing now. And my wife and I, we ended up getting divorced. But then I meet this amazing individual. That's where my story, I believe, really begins in happiness. Because up until that point, I was a Marine and I was in this culture of just in your face and aggression and discipline and, and intensity. And I loved it. And then I get out into an environment that it's extremely fast paced, go, 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 no mistakes, extreme wealth, no regard to anybody other than yourself. I'm stressed. And life is just, for me, tanking emotionally. My happiness level, I was so miserable. I had no decompression time, right? And I had honestly no purpose. I was doing careers where I was away from my loved ones only to make money. My purpose, I had none other than I'll work hard to have money. So I go from executive protection, making close to $300,000 a year, making amazing money, flying private jets and eating $1,000 meals to my current career when I started where I was making from $300,000, where my first year I make $25,000. Oh my gosh, what a learning curve that must have been. And my happiness through the roof because... I had purpose. I enjoyed what I was doing and the people I was working with, they have the utmost respect for me and they value me. And it was just a lot of money, miserable, very little money. So happy. Right. My daughter, she's getting older. And like I said, my ex-wife and me, we were divorced. Um, but then I meet my wife, Gina, and she has three children. And I heard chaplains, naval chaplains talk about a support system and how crucial that is. If you really want to get over what's bothering you and your demons, you need somebody that you're close with to talk with and that you can trust with your feelings and emotions. And I meet my wife. She, she's the one. That's what she does for me. She takes everything with no bias, with complete understanding, lack of judgment, and she just takes it. And she does that for me and for our children and for our family. And that is, I would say, for veterans getting out who struggle big time with any, whether it's PTSD or whether it's what you perceive yourself as, I would say 
find a friend or find, find, you know, a loved one that really truly takes all of your issues and takes them with zero judgment and just gives positive feedback. Because I think a lot of veterans, they struggle big time. They, they struggle big time with finding a purpose in life because their identity completely re- revolves around, well, I was a veteran who did all these amazing things mm-hmm. and now I'm just a construction worker. One of the guests that I had, his name is Carmelo Rodriguez, and he calls it the G.I. Joe complex mm-hmm. where, you know, you're there, you're saving lives, you're doing big things. And then you come back and what you work at Walmart. That's right. hard to deal with. For a lot of people, it's so hard to deal with when they get out for that transition. And But the thing is, is, you know, everybody probably has 10 or 15 restarts in their life and they don't even realize it or understand it. And veterans are the same. But doing the things that you did as a veteran are so significant and profound mm-hmm. on a large scale mm-hmm. that those resets are, they're under the umbrella. They're in a shadow and they don't realize it. So having somebody that could recenter you when you need it over time, you, you don't need it anymore. You're good. You're fine. You're on the right track, you know? So yeah, veterans who get out, if they could just find something, a purpose that goes along with somebody in their life who is completely understanding with no judgment, gosh, they're going to be even better, even better than the, when they went in. When you came back, did you, or do you still struggle with PTS or PTSD, whatever you want to call it? You know, that's a funny thing, PTSD, because I will say this. If you do, if you're an infantry Marine or a soldier or somebody who's done fighting, if you come back and you don't have some type of stressor, like I'm not a doctor, but you probably had something wrong big time prior to going in. And the reason why I say that, and I don't want that to sound harsh. The reason why I say that is we as Americans value life on such a significant level that when you do the things that you have to do in order to come back when you're there, if you don't come back with some type of issue that you have to deal with, something's going on. And so you can't, and you shouldn't be ashamed of PTSD that's, that's another thing I think veterans struggle with is they're ashamed of it. They think it's like a weakness. It's a disease, right? Not me. I'm big and tough. I'm the best there ever was. Why do I have it? Now that I have it, uh, I'm weak. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's a war scar. You get it from doing the things you have to do, but it doesn't define you and it shouldn't define you. And for me, my PTSD when I came back was I just wanted to be left alone. Mm. I I did not want to, I didn't want to go out and have like a lot of fun. I did not want to celebrate anything. I wanted to be left alone and not in like a reclusive bad way. I just wanted relaxation. And yet life a lot of times does not allow that relaxation because you have life and family and your career and all those other things that go along with it. So what I found with my PTSD is I want to be left alone so I could kind of decompress, but life is taking over. So then what happens is 
my loved ones are trying to communicate with me, trying to talk, trying to love me. And I'm irritated. I just get irritated and not in a violent way and not in any way that is like conducive to bad behavior. But in my mind, I'm like, everybody needs to go away and I need to be left alone. But I'm faking the funk of trying to be present. So what I found is the first two, three years out of the Marine Corps, I wasn't present. I was there, but I wasn't present. I wasn't fulfilling people's needs and expectations. I wasn't being responsible with who I was in people's lives. You know, things have to change. And that was my biggest PTSD was I felt like I wasn't being responsible as what I was capable of and like the love and compassion and the guidance I could give people. But I was also in a career that allowed me not to have a purpose Mm -hmm. and a passion outside of work. It was all encompassing. So when I moved to Utah and I met my wife, that's when things slowed down. That's when everything was wiped clean. I wasn't, it wasn't hectic. It wasn't fast paced. It was, I'm Andrew. This is me now. I'm present. I have my beautiful children. I have this family. And no matter the amount of money, doesn't matter. It's my family needs time. But more important than time, they need quality time. So when I started really prioritizing that, my stress level went down. I didn't go reclusive. I Instead of being like, let alone, I wanted people to be around me. I love that comfort. I love that interaction. And that's really allowed me to kind of make significant leaps and bounds in professional and emotional gain in my, in my personal life. So for me, my PTSD was never drinking, drug use, violence. It was being present. It was not self self-absorbed in my own thoughts. It was, I would say for me, emotionally, it was dark, but for other people, it was just kind of like, hey, he's just not the same. He's, he's just not that fun guy anymore. He's not that, he's not that guy you could go to and ask questions or it affects everybody different though. Yeah, that's for sure. The episode that I released this week as I'm speaking with you, his name is Steve Brown, and he's a Navy SEAL. He's retired Navy SEAL. And I'm wondering how you feel about how we treat veterans today, and are they getting the help that they need? Because as we talk about veteran suicide, and we talked about that on this podcast episode with Steve, and we all hear 22 a day. Mm -hmm. recently he, well, I don't know if it's in recently, it might've been a while. He spoke with someone. um, She is over like four different hospitals in Arizona for veterans. And she said that that statistic is not correct. It's more like 44 a day. Yeah. Which is completely tragic. What are Mm. we doing wrong? What do we need to change you as a veteran? Do you feel like you were getting the help that you needed from the VA? 
Is there help out yeah. there? Yeah. So, you know, I've been asked this question so many times, especially by loved ones, family members. And, and I know this is going to like rub some people, veterans the wrong way. Um, but it is truly how I feel just from my observations is a veteran in the global war on terror, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq, was never forced to go in. It's all a volunteer status. That being said, the things that the administrations did that really caused a lot of the issues within veterans, such as rules of engagement and things like that, that's, that's on the administration. But my experience getting out was the Marine Corps made it known for months prior to me getting out because I had to go through the mandatory classes of getting out that these are the available options for your help. You could go to the VA, you could go to the DVA, you have all these organizations and they stressed it's mandatory that Marines take this. They stressed that these are the hundred plus organizations that you could go to for help. And suicide was a huge one. Huge. I mean, suicide prevention classes are consistent through your service. In fact, as an infantry Marine, I probably received more suicide prevention classes than I did any other. That's interesting. And that's including, that's including getting out. Suicide prevention is huge. So you receive those classes. And then I know what I did when I got out, and I hope other veterans hear this, is when I left the service, I felt still big and strong, but I also knew that they were giving me all this information for a reason. So I signed up for all the newsletters from the VA, DVA, from the Foreign Legion. I mean, all the way down to like the Kiwanis Club and the Elks Club. They all have these programs for veterans. So I signed up for all their newsletters. And there were a few times when I was out and I was like, I wonder what I could do to receive like something, help. And not help in the way of like, I feel suicidal, but like I was thinking about, you know, starting personal investments for money. So what do I do? I reach out to the DVA and they help me out. So it could be things other than just mental awareness. It could be, you know, financial, which is a big stressor for a lot of veterans. So I did all of those. But the number one thing I have seen from veterans that have got out and made a significant impact of their life in their lives and other people's lives, and they've actually they've grown personally is they've always taken accountability for what has happened to them. And a good example is Matt Bradford. I have a handful of other Marines that they have had such significant injuries that they could have easily said, yes, give me 100% disability. Yes. Leave me alone. Yes. I want to be this angry old returning combat veteran who, you know, turns to alcohol and drug use. They could have easily done that, but instead they take accountability. They say, I volunteered. I went, this is what happened to me. It's not a pity party. I'm not sad. What can I do? 
And when you see that and they say their life is better now, and some of them have missing limbs and vision and they can't grab things anymore, or they can't smell, or they can't see their wife and kids. And they still say their life is better because they have a purpose. And that's my biggest thing for veterans is, do I believe the VA is providing adequate help? In some cases, yes. Other cases, no. I mean, I know of Marine friends of mine that have tried to get simple things from the VA for years, and it's not happening. But then I know other Marines who go right to the VA and they get it done. I've seen and I know personally veterans that have committed suicide, brothers I served with that have committed suicide. They have a family and children, and yet they still commit suicide. They resort to drug use or they get violent. I have a few Marines who are, you know, in federal prison and they were amazing Marines and they get out. And they do something so drastic. Now they're serving life terms. And yet the number one thing I see in those individuals lives is they feel like they don't have a purpose anymore. And when you don't have that purpose, you resort to other means of coping. And, you know, it could be easy as like just reaching out to people and talking and finding a new hobby to going back to school and increasing your education. I mean, it's countless out there. I would say veterans receive just as much help as they actually put into it. Mm. Andrew, you're <laughs> I, talking a lot yeah. about purpose. Yeah. What is your purpose? You know, that's actually how I see America, you know, like a lot of people, they look at America as, you know, freedom and, and this and opportunity. And I see America as purpose. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, America for me and my personal goal is it, it's that value of life. And how do I increase other people's opinion about themselves and their self-awareness and their respect? And well, I try not to go a day without giving something significant to somebody, whether that's my kids asking me a question, I try to fulfill it a hundred percent to telling somebody, you know, walking across the street, you know, like you look good, you feel happy, you look happy, right? Simple little things. And for me, that's what America is. It's like brilliance in the simple little things that make life so good. It's, being able to go across the street to your neighbors and having a tea or a cup of coffee, walking down the street and you're safe, being able to go to any school and access any knowledge that you could imagine to anything that you want. There is purpose behind it. If you have just the drive for it. I have to just ask you about, <laughs> I love this name, the trained monkey knife company. Does that mean there's so right. that even a monkey can use it? Is that what that means? <laughs> it's a catchy name. I get it. And some people are like, well, that's, that's different. Right. Uh, but it's, it's a throwback to being an infantry Marine, you know, as a machine gunner, we're, we were bigger than most Marines uh, just because of the equipment we carried, but you know, unofficially we'd always be like, you know, like we're like trained monkeys or like a trained <laughs> monkey could do this. Right. But it, it just stuck. And I, I knew that's what I needed to do for my business name. And 
And it's because I could relate to it. I wanted something personal. I wanted something different. Yeah, maybe it's a little gimmicky, catchy. But nonetheless, now what we notice is people will actually buy a lot of our products just because our logo and the name. So I'm like, eh, you know, it works. What kind of knives are you making? Oh, so we predominantly serve like the military and law enforcement community. Um, and that's why I actually started making them as subpar gear that was issued to us. I'm like, I got to do it better. And I've always been interested in knives, but it's, it's honestly not about the knife. It's about, it's about the trade. It's about the craft. It's about making something that you're passionate about and other people love it and respect it and want to pass it down, you know, and it's been such an eye-opening experience, the acceptance we've had with our business, you know, and my wife and I, we put our heart and soul into it, but it's truly, it's not about the product. It's about that personal relationship that we, we form friendships now and lifelong with some of our customers. And, and that's kind of what we do different than most, I think is, it is that personal connection behind a product, which then, you know, people, they, they want to support us because of that. And it, it's been awesome. So that's kind of how we're giving back to the military community. Where can we find you on social media and website? You could, so Instagram's our big one. That's kind of where we do most of our marketing is um, at trainmonkeybladeco.com. And then our website is www.trainmonkeybladeco.com. And what we do differently than any other knife company, especially like what's called a tactical knife community, military law enforcement, is full customization. So whatever the client wants, we'll do it. No questions asked. You know, if you have a family heirloom that you want passed down, well, nothing speaks better than the tool that you could use. And so full customization, client 100% of the time, first and foremost. And, and that's just kind of how we do it. That's what we live by for the business. All right. My last question, and you, already, you kind of already answered this, but I want to see if you want to add anything to it. It's always, what does America mean to you? Oh, yeah. God. I mean, we could spend the whole <laughs> podcast on that. I like uh, that. You know, and. And, you know, it's like I said, with purpose, you know, as an American, you know, kind of the running joke as an American, you're kind of isolated from other cultures, you know. Um, but for me, my experience is actually vastly different. Uh, I actually find Americans very open and very willing and the acceptance of other people and other cultures to come here and, and pass that culture to us. And we fully grasp it and envelop it and we make it prosperous that for me that is so beautiful um you know even the community i live in now it's an immigrant community it's it's greeks and czechs and italians and mexicans and spanish and, and chinese and japanese it's it's everybody and yet it's not czechs and greeks and italians and japanese and mexicans it's americans it's the integration of values and, and for me, that is so strong because I could walk down my street and it's safe for my children. I could go to the store and I could buy things that are made by Americans and we could support these people. And yet I still live in a community that's immigrant and you would never know it. 
and the integration for me of people to be able to come and at least try to have a better life is so significant that it's hard to look at any, any other place as I'm not saying being equal, but being the same, just as vastly different from my experience. Well, Andrew, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your American story with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 